to this episode of We Need to Talk About Whiteness, the place that you come to to explore the unspoken world of whiteness, or to speak plainly, where we discuss the impact of white racial identity on the world around us. I'm Miriam Francois and I'm your host, and in this episode I'm joined by the formidable Dr. Priyam van der Gopal, who is a reader at the Faculty of English at Cambridge University, where her work focuses on colonial and post-colonial literature and theory. She's the author of several books, including the most recent Insurgent Empire, Anti-Colonial Resistance and British Descent. And if you don't follow her on Twitter yet, you will want to do that right now. Uh, welcome, Dr. Gopal. Thank you for joining Thank us. Thank you. Thank you. Um, Happy to be Thank you. So, so first off, um, what is whiteness to you and, and do you find it a useful concept? Okay, well, let me start by saying what it's not. Um, it's, not a it's not a biological category. Uh, race is not a biological category. Race, uh, for me, whether that refers to whiteness or blackness or brownness, um, is about certain physical markers, uh, skin color, hair color, uh, you know, facial features, which are connected to culture. So it, they're connected to how we operate in society, how we uh, think about other people, how we think about ourselves, um, and how we relate to each other. So whiteness for me is primarily a cultural category, not a biological one. So for me, yes, whiteness is useful in in terms of talking about uh, how society is structured, who gets to be dominant, who gets to have more power, uh, who gets to be seen or not seen. Um, so whiteness is a category uh, for me that is you know, useful in terms of explaining how, uh, let us say, for instance, Western societies work. Mm -hmm. And um, do you have a particular example of anything that may be happening currently in politics, which for you is a really good illustration of how whiteness operates in the UK today? Um, I think one of the ways in which um, it is operating, uh, perhaps surprisingly, is in relation to Brexit. Um, now, Brexit, much of Brexit discourse uh, is, you know, is kind of premised on, uh, let us say, uh, criticism of migration or hostile attitudes towards immigration and immigrants. Um, and although in theory that includes uh, immigrants who one would consider white, in practice what we've got is a distinction between uh, indigenous Britons who are presumed really largely to be white and you've got migrants who are presumed to be largely non-white. So that even though reality isn't, uh, doesn't really reflect that, there are lots of uh, British people who are not white, and there are lots of uh, migrants who are in fact uh, white. Um, the way in which Brexit has presented it to, you know, presented itself in society uh, seems to me to be very heavily racialized in terms of the so-called indigenous Britain, who is assumed to be white, um, and the migrant who, even though they may be coming from Europe, uh, is somehow presented as not white. I mean, you, you know, we will remember the infamous poster uh, that 
uh, elements of the Brexit campaign uh, put up. This this showed, uh, you know, Britain at breaking point, and it showed a long line of uh, refugees from the Middle East who were coming in, in fact, to Eastern Europe and not to Britain. Uh, but that was a very good example of the ways in which the migrant is presented to us as essentially not white. So that Brexit itself has become a war about, you know, implicitly about keeping Britain white. And so how do you think this um, current juncture fits into sort of the his- the modern history of Britain? Because obviously we went through the um, post-war period of, you know, celebrating multiculturalism, even in terms of um, a state ideology. Um, and and so we seem to be kind of moving into a different phase now where the disillusionment with multiculturalism for a range of reasons, either real or manufactured, um, has led to this place that we're at now, which, you know, seems to be a harking back towards a notion of Britain as, as like you say, a sort of white utopia um, and where where do you see that coming from? Well, I think one thing I would say is that although things seem to be changing, um, and of course things do change historically, there is a kind of curious continuity between the campaigns of the 1950s and 60s about keeping Britain white, that you know, those were explicit uh, party political slogans, um, and talking about migrants today. And that's exactly what I was saying earlier, that although nobody would use the term white, or uh, very few people would explicitly say keep Britain white, when they talk about migrants, they are in fact producing a version of let us keep Britain white. I mean, there is, I think, uh, we need to think about the ways in which the the so-called hostile environment, which, uh, you know, was a a government slogan uh, uh, for the last several years, um, the hostile environment is not new. Um, the the ways in which that environment presents itself, the specific uh, policies and the specific images might change a little bit. But in fact, Britain has always had a hostile environment for migrants and uh, refugees. It's just that the nature of it uh, changes. Um, but to answer the second part of your question about multiculturalism and its discontents, I mean, one of the interesting things about British multiculturalism is that it also was always racialized. So it presented the uh, majority culture as white but tolerant, um, and it presented minorities as not white uh, but needing to integrate into majority norms. Um, and so there was never really a questioning of the fundamental premise of Britain itself as white. It was a question of how you related to that whiteness, whether you chose to integrate or not integrate. British multi- official multiculturalism, that is also rarely uh, thought about interactions between cultures. It really kept everyone in their silos. um, And it presumed that there was an exact match between race and culture. uh, And that if you were Muslim, you did certain things. If you were Hindu, you did certain things. If you were white and Christian, you did certain things. uh, And and everybody just had to kind of coexist in a fairly static way. So I think that that it isn't so much that multiculturalism um, has failed or that multiculturalism has led to where we are now. 
now as it is that multiculturalism was never really thought about in complicated ways. Uh, for instance, one of the points I make in my book is that uh, multiculturalism never really thought about the ways in which, uh, let us say, Black and Asian uh, uh, people had, had over time given things to Britain. Uh, given their labor, given their ideas, given their culture, their cuisine, their art to Britain. We always think in terms of the majority uh, culture as being the giving culture. Mm. And we think of minority cultures as taking from Britain. And I think that that particular story, uh, which is a racialized story where whiteness is generous um, and non-whiteness is um, always in a petitioning position, I think that story has been quite damaging. And that, and because that story has never quite gone away, I think we're at the impasse that we are at now again with Brexit. And so in many ways, that, that feeds in nicely to, to talking about the role that um, bringing in alternative uh, narratives of history uh, play in dismantling whiteness. And I know that in your book, um, you talk a lot about the uh, movements for resistance to empire. Um, I mean, to, to what extent is the current, um, I would call it an impasse over whiteness in as much as there's a, a very strong reticence to talk about whiteness as a problem, to acknowledge its existence even. To what extent are we there because we're not engaging with the full picture of history? Well, I think um, it, the answer is very much uh, uh, we are there because we haven't engaged with the full picture uh, of history. Um, you know, the, the, the point you make about whiteness not being discussed, uh, you know, that is the privilege of any majority dominant term. It doesn't have to look at itself. So mm. the people who get visibilized, the people who get seen, uh, are either people who are at the receiving end of, uh, you know, uh, oppression or people who are in a minority. So your blackness or your brownness gets noticed. Um, if you're a gay person in a heterosexual society, you get noticed. But the dominant culture, uh, whether that's whiteness, um, whether that's Christianness, whether that's uh, heterosexuality, that has the privilege of never having to look at itself. And I think what is very useful about the kinds of discussion that you and others are now facilitating is that it's saying that it's not enough to just look at the minorities or the dissidents. It's important to look at the norm. Um, so, yes, to go back to uh, your initial question, I think that if we look at the ways in which whiteness itself was produced by empire, the whole idea of the white race, the whole idea of uh, whiteness as being fundamental to Europe or to Westernness or to Britishness. These are things that, you know, they haven't existed since the dawn of time. These are ideas about race that really came into full force in the 18th century um, mm. and were very, very operative in the colonial project. So if we want to talk about whiteness, uh, as we must, just as we must talk about maleness or uh, heterosexuality, then we need to think about the history in which ideas of race came into play. And that history, in Britain's case, is, is the history of empire. And what does the um, history of empire tell us about the construction of the meaning of whiteness? Because 
often in these conversations because of the um, large body of work on whiteness that's coming out of the US, we're often indebted, I find, to uh, a, a US-centric understanding of whiteness. But it does seem to me that although there are clear continuities, there are also some quite distinct aspects to British whiteness that are grounded in the way the empire forged a notion of itself as a white empire. Yes. Um, yes. And so, yeah, could you can you provide maybe some some insights from your own work about how that history tells us something about the nature of how the 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 UK notion of whiteness has been built? Yeah, I mean, there are, you know, several examples, but perhaps the most famous example in uh, Britain's case would be Kipling's White Man's Burden. Um, and that, of course, became central to the arguments put forth for an empire, for colonialism, because colonialism was one of those projects uh, which was actually very aware um, that it was about exploitation, it was about land grabbing, it was about resource mining, um, it was about profit making. And so frequently throughout its uh, course, empire had to come up with good reasons for why it was, you know, out there in far-flung lands doing its thing. And this is where the idea of the white man's burden became a rationale, which is to say, well, we are there uh, not because we are there for profit or for land. We are there because these darker-skinned peoples need us. And that's how the idea of the white man's burden came up. So, you know, it wasn't the British man's burden. It wasn't the Englishman's burden necessarily. It was the white man's burden. And the idea was that uh, empire was a racially benevolent project, which was uh, about the white man. And it was a man, not a woman, uh, who went out into uh, the darker lands of the world in Asia, in Africa, in order to serve the darker skinned uh, uh, peoples. So you can see there already that idea of Britain as a giving culture, as a generous culture, as a fundamentally benevolent culture, which you also see in migration discourse, which is here we are, this is Britain, and we are constantly being taken advantage of by migrants and by uh, people who are not white. Um, so you can see a continuity there between the idea of the giving white man, the, the white man who is in the service of the globe, um, and the people who are taking from Britain all the time, uh, whether in, the, in, the, in their capacity as colonized subjects or their capacity as immigrants or refugees. Um, so the white man's burden, I think, uh, is a very simple and telling um, uh, uh, concept. Uh, you know, we know, for uh, for instance, uh, that Boris Johnson, when he was in uh, Myanmar, formerly Burma, uh, a few years ago, uh, he was caught on microphone reciting Kipling. Yes, that's uh, what came to mind, actually, when you said it. I was thinking about that continuity exactly. Very much so. I mean, and that, that Kiplingian notion is not something that we've left behind in the 19th century. It very much drives politics and policy today. Yeah, and, and it's also interesting, as you, as you speak, I'm thinking about also the conversations we tend to have about foreign aid in this country, so that foreign aid is very much viewed as, you know, these sort of um, kind-hearted donations that are being made to these these poor countries that we just feel quite sorry for, really. Um, 
Uh, and actually, the story of how foreign aid is, uh, con- you know, constructed, delivered, who it's delivered to, um, yes. uh, is 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 not really so much about kind of assistance, really, is it? I mean, what 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 is your view in terms of the political manifestations of of that continuity between this white man's burden and and how Britain operates in the world today? Yeah, I mean, there are two things to say there. I'm not, I'm not a, a huge expert on aid, but I think you've put your finger on it in terms of the kind of benevolence narrative. Um, in fact, there are two things that are interesting about aid. You know, many, uh, many uh, post-colonial nations uh, have suggested that aid should be reframed as reparations. So, particularly the Caribbean nations, which have been demanding reparations for uh, you know two two three centuries of enslavement um and britain uh, has repeatedly refused to relabel aid as reparations so there is a complete denial of the great damage um wrought by slavery and colonialism but the flip side of that is that aid is normally given in order to help clear the ground for both resource uh, continued resource mining and markets, right? It, it's yes. really about uh, about making the world safe, if you like, for uh, for capitalism to operate. Uh, and you know, this is the case in relation to uh, to India, very much. So, aid is very tied up to uh, enabling British corporations to come in and, for instance, um, you know, mine for uranium. Uh, in in one controversial instance, um, and it's true for aid in parts of Africa as well. So there's a kind of double denial. There's a denial of past um, past uh, you know uh, damage, and there is a denial of the present day agenda, which is not about benevolence. It is still very much tied up to profit making and markets. And and so, to what extent would you say that um, the current uh, state of whiteness in this country, which is one in which it seems there are not only historical continuities that are manifesting in the political sphere, but obviously, um, arguably within a wider culture and and self-perception by uh, people who belong to the uh, majority white group of themselves as part of a nation that is, like you say, benevolent, uh, you know, generally a a good, a well-intentioned country when it comes to its um, engagements with the rest of the world world um how do we even begin to challenge that narrative well i think that challenge um happens in two ways one is that um you know history has to be taught better and and i'm i'm one of many people who have been repeatedly calling for empire to be taught properly and fully um starting from schools uh, onwards i think you know i think that there is a very simplistic mythological narrative uh, about britishness and empire and therefore about whiteness um which circulates uh in britain today um the other thing to say is that people who belong uh you know broadly speaking to that majority racial community that is white in the case of 
uh, Britain have to start insisting on that conversation. And so, you know, I mean, your podcast is is one example of a site where you're saying, well, you know, we need, as you say, we need to talk about whiteness. Um, for me, the parallel example uh, is important, which is that it is really through looking at how whiteness operates simultaneously powerful and invisible, uh, is that I've been able to think about my own position as a, an upper caste, a Brahmin, uh, descent woman in India. Um, and I too come from a, a context which is very similar to that of, of you know, white people in Britain, which is to say uh, the upper castes, particularly Brahmins, hold a great deal of power uh, in India. They uh, have a disproportionate hold on uh, you know, everything from government jobs to academic jobs to corporate positions and, and political power. Um, and they uh, do not see that at all. Um, and in fact, they have a tendency to see themselves as victims. And the reason they see themselves as victims uh, is because uh, people who've been at the receiving end of caste oppression are now starting to uh, be more militant, to demand their rights, to take their place uh, at the table. And so in, in very similar ways to, to how in Britain, uh, there's sometimes a sense that, you know, white Britons are now the real victims. Uh, you have a similar situation in India where upper castes will speak about themselves as victims uh, because others are asking for their share, for their rights. So I think it's very important for upper castes in India to uh, start thinking about their own power, their own uh, invisibility, their own position. Uh, and so I also think it's very important for, you know, people identified uh, with, you know, white uh, Britishness to start uh, forcing those conversations open. It has to be made visible and these conversations have to happen because I think the great problem of the last, uh, you know, several decades has been the silence uh, around whiteness, around race generally, but certainly around whiteness specifically. And and do you have a sense of why it is that that, that silence is able to go forth? Because the most common response that I will receive if I speak to um, people who are identified as white about whiteness is that oh well I don't see myself as white because obviously there is some level of awareness usually that white racial identity I think is is problematic you know I think I think that when people react like that I'm reading into it that actually at some level you're not really comfortable <laughs> with what it yeah. means to be white but you're also not uncomfortable enough to engage with it because if you were you you'd have to confront what that means and not just for yourself and for others but but for others and so I'm, I'm curious as to why you feel like um we are in a position where white people can continue in many ways to avoid and be protected from having that conversation. How, how does that happen? Well, it happens, uh, you know, in a sense, quite simply, because why would you want to have the conversation? Once you start having that conversation, you would have to start thinking about power and privilege and what advantages, structural advantages have accrued to you because you are white. So that silence uh, is, uh, is not an accidental silence, it's a necessary silence. In order for power to keep its power, or for privilege to keep its privileges, uh, it cannot afford to, see, uh, to identify itself or see itself 
uh, as what it is. Um, so you know, uh, if you're uh, male uh, in a in a in a society which is heavily skewed towards men, why would you want to talk about maleness? Uh, you know, it it has served you well all these centuries not to talk about it. Um, and I and I said uh, the same goes for upper castes in India. Why would you Why would you want to talk about it when in fact all it will lead to uh, is undoing some of those advantages uh, and privileges. So there's nothing, there's nothing, um, you know, there's a kind of self-preservative instinct in not wanting to be identified and in, in going uh, below the radar. Because once you're above the radar, then you're vulnerable. You're vulnerable to having precisely those uh, advantages and, and uh, privileges come under scrutiny. Mm. Well, so I suppose, do we feel that it, it's, um, in a sense, necessary? It feels almost wrong to, 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 to bring up the idea that you have to incentivize, um, you know, engagement with whiteness, because I suppose as someone identified as white myself, I feel like, you, you know, there's a level of um, recognition of the wrongs that have been wrought in the name of whiteness and the the the, um the imbalance that that's been created and so i suppose my motivation would be to say well if you have been part of creating the imbalance you have to be part of creating the solution to that imbalance um but but i suppose it does imply a loss of um uh, dominance yeah. Um, I, I, I struggle with the idea because I hear this a lot, um, particularly from people who say, well, how do we how do we get white people to engage with this when basically you're asking them to go against their own interests as a group? Um, yeah. and, and I hear that. But I'm also wondering, is there is there another way? You know, it can't be that the only incentive is dominance. I sort of feel like is that just a very masculine perception of what power means? Because dominance isn't the only way to hold power in this world is it or am I being too hard on men now (laughs) no I mean I think I think your question is an extremely good one it's you know it's interesting you use the word incentives uh, or incentivize um, when when you uh, began this uh, question because in a sense you're right you know you can't offer uh, profits you can't offer a prize for uh, starting to think about your own privileges or advantages and undoing them. Uh, you can't think about it in a narrow sense. But, um, and again, I'll go back to my book here. One of the points I make in the book throughout is that there were alliances from the 19th century, maybe even before onwards, between precisely white British people and uh, black and Asian colonized people. And those alliances were actually based um, not just on, you know, British people saying, oh, we've done wrong, although there was quite a lot of that, uh, you know, people saying, don't do this in our name. Um, But there were people also saying, you know what, we need to think about who is really in power. Um, And we need to think about the fact, for instance, that the people who uh, oppress, let us say, Indian uh, mill workers or uh, the, you know, the workers in the Caribbean oil fields or the descendants of Jamaican slaves. The people who oppress these uh, colonized peoples are the same people who are responsible for the terrible conditions that British 
industrial workers or the British working classes uh, face. And so there was a making of common cause beyond race. There was an mm. understanding. You know, race was important and, and race did have its privileges, but there were, you know, people aren't only just race. We also have uh, other identities, other social identities. We also have class identities. We have, as, we, as you just said, we have gender uh, operative. Um, so, you know, th the idea is that we aren't just white or uh, just uh, black. We have other allegiances and social identities as well. And so we start to think about things not just in terms of, uh, you know, single dimensional, one person is powerful and the other person is not, but to think about the ways in which our vulnerabilities can also unite us. Uh, that, you know, the fact that people have reason to make common cause, that people have reason to have solidarity across racial boundaries. So it isn't just a story about loss, uh, because with the loss of racial privileges may come the gain of a different kind of community. So I think that the story isn't just one uh, of incentivizing people uh, as you rightly said, in you know, kind of narrow masculine or capitalist terms, but of getting people to think about multiple identities. You know, one one question you always get is what you know when you say, use the the phrase white privilege, people will say, well, you know, I'm earning minimum wage um, and I can barely make ends meet, and I have three jobs, uh, and I may be white, but how dare you call me privileged? And the the, the point there is, yes, precisely, you're you're. You're not a privileged person in an absolute sense. Uh, you may have certain privileges as a white uh, uh, person uh, that somebody in the same economic position but who is black may not have. Uh, but both you and that person share the fact of being vulnerable to economic hierarchies in society. So why not make common cause uh, on shared vulnerabilities without denying that certain privileges do accrue to you uh, because you're white. Uh, you know, uh, you, we are all people who face both power and vulnerability. You know, you and I are middle class women. Um, so we may be women, uh, but we have a certain amount of power from our class background. But as women, we are at the receiving end of societies that are still very male dominated. So, you know, we are, we are a complex mix of things. Uh, and I think that once we start having a, a, a more complicated discussion, people can see the ways in which uh, they are disadvantaged and they can also see the ways in which they are advantaged. And so just as I may be uh, at the receiving end of a certain degree of anti-migrant um, and uh, anti-minority sentiment in Britain, um, I and my family and my community are uh, in pole position uh, in, in India, uh, back at home. Mm -hmm. So I know what it is like to be simultaneously, um, you know, uh, uh, if you like, uh, uh, someone in, in a position of power and someone at the receiving end of power. And so I think we need to think in more, more complicated terms about identity. Yeah, it's really interesting you raise that point because I feel that it's one of the sort of nuances of the conversation around whiteness that gets lost very quickly is that people kind of retreat into these silos of we're only talking about race or we're only yes. talking about class or we're only talking about gender and actually it's really impossible to have this conversation around whiteness unless we take into account all of the other multiple and intertwining ways in which people experience 
both privilege and oppression. One of my uh, friends actually recently uh, who is black British was pointing out that actually she benefits from pretty privilege, which some, uh, you know, other women do not, which, you know, she was very, she was made very aware of recently in a situation where she was thinking, well, why am I being singled out for special treatment here? And, um, uh, and so, yeah, privilege operates in many different ways. And, um, and I suppose there's a defensiveness sometimes in, in kind of falling back on the ideas in which uh, we, when, when white people are made to face the reality that the systemic oppression that they are an unwitting, usually an unwitting participant of, uh, that the defense mechanism is to turn around and say, well, actually, I go through all this bad stuff, so I can't possibly be the aggressor. Yeah. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, and it's it's tough to to move beyond that. Um, I was wondering. Of, yeah, sorry, go ahead. No, no, go. Uh, you go. The flip side of that, and it's something I've written about uh, today for for the Independent, uh, which is the claim that the fact that Preeti Patel or Sajid Javed uh, are part of the cabinet. Cabinet, uh, Boris Johnson's cabinet uh, shows a great uh, uh, stride for diversity. And I've argued that, you know, actually, uh, just because you have brown people uh, in your organization doesn't necessarily make it automatically anti-racist or progressive, that it's perfectly possible uh, to be black or brown and totally uphold uh, white supremacy, but also uphold some of the more problematic values uh, that emerge from Asian communities, whether that's caste privilege or uh, economic privilege. So, you know, we can't assume that just because someone is uh, not white, uh, they are automatically progressive or uh, uh, or emancipatory in, in their own uh, way of thinking about the world. Yeah, I sometimes wonder whether this is a product of the sort of um, slightly, I call it the fetishization of diversity, where mm -hmm. um, everyone's so keen to prove their anti-racist credentials by engaging or um, sort of uh, being on board with the, the quote-unquote diversity movement. But there's been very little willingness to engage with what we mean by diversity. And I, and I say that as someone who straddles you know, similarly in some ways to yourself, two conflicting identities, one of kind of white racial dominance, but also as a Muslim being very aware of the realities of how, you know, for the majority of my adult yeah. life, I was perceived with a headscarf as someone from a very much subaltern identity. Yeah. Um, and yeah. so, uh, realizing that when we talk about diversity, I personally do not fit the box, the diversity box, right? But when I listen to other speakers who may be of a BAME background, I sometimes think that actually the what we call diversity has been replaced with a um, uh, a kind of obsession with aesthetics. Um, well, absolutely, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's what I meant earlier when I talked about multiculturalism being, you know, very, uh, very static model. Um, it, you know, it didn't see communities as fluid and complex and diverse in themselves. Uh, it simply went for religion or skin color, uh, and and it just stuck with that kind of single dimension. And I don't think that single static dimensions serve anybody. Mm. And do, do you do you have a sense of why we've ended up with this? Um, sort of fetishization of aesthetics. I mean, I, I definitely personally link it somewhat to 
to consumerism and the way in which consumerism has sort of um, adopted these these models which are basically to sell us products so there doesn't need to be that much substance but then we ourselves buy into the aesthetic of diversity rather than the substantive conversation around diversity I don't know what your personal thoughts are on that I guess it's just easier isn't it I mean it's just easier to instead of saying we're going to have a tough conversation uh, about difficult issues uh, to say all right uh, we will get bring in one uh, Asian Muslim lecturer and one, uh, uh, you know, black British professor and we're done. Um, mm. Because all what you do then is you don't have to have the difficult conversation. You, you bring in people uh, who fit the aesthetic criteria and you say, look, here, here we are. Uh, we've done it. We're good to go. Um, I mean, I don't want to minimize uh, you know, skin color or, uh, you know, physical differences. It, you know, it is difficult to be uh, black in a, uh, a a white majority society. It is hard being, uh, you know, gay in a, in a heterocentric world. Uh, so these things matter. But the, the issue is that it isn't only these things. We, we are never just one thing or the other. And, and if we're going to have a proper substantive conversation, as we put it, about diversity, then it cannot be based on, uh, single criteria or single aesthetic dimensions. Um, well, thank you so much uh, for sharing your insights with us. And um, before we let you go, I would love to hear if you have any uh, reading recommendations for uh, the Whiteness Book Club. We always like to, to add any on there that you may think are worth a read. Well, um, I know you've had Robin D'Angelo on your program before, and I, I do think that White Fragility is a is a very useful uh, book uh, in terms of talking about, in terms of opening up the conversation and talking about the, the difficulty in having that conversation. But another book I found extremely useful in uh, recent years is uh, Akala's Natives, uh, which is really examining... Uh, it's part memoir, uh, part social analysis, uh, and and it's him as a kind of uh, young black mixed race uh, British man uh, thinking about issues of race, uh, blackness, whiteness, class, uh, culture in Britain today. So I think it's a it's a book that's very very useful and readable uh, in terms of describing the present day situation in Britain in relation to these issues from the perspective of, um, of, of a young BME Britain. Great. Well, thank you so much again for joining us. And I hope you've all enjoyed listening to this week's episode. Uh, and I hope you can join us again for another episode of We Need to Talk About Whiteness. Thank you.